chapter 1, uh, the last uh, three verses. By the way, people have asked about, I do a weekly news, uh, Tuesday News and Views. And if you'd like to be on my email list for that, it, uh, I have 10 News and Views every week. And it deals with uh, principles of leadership and servanthood and Christian walk and uh, uh, missions and uh, what's happening in news today. So if you would like to be on that, uh, it's not a fundraising letter, but it's an email. You put your name and address, name and uh, email here, and, uh, and I'll put you on that list. The title of my message is Christ in You, the Hope of Glory. The Hope of Glory for the Nations. This is a missions conference. And by the way, I hope you don't mind if I use notes. People say I need all the help I can get. I didn't learn to read until I was 21. And uh, even when I do read, if I write a quote, I have to have my wife. I cannot read phonetically. So uh, I stumble through my messages, but I need, all, I need my notes. And if, uh, I, I read a book recently on how to preach without notes. I was so depressed after that, I didn't preach for two weeks. And, and uh, it's really something. I'm reading a book now on uh, how to preach with freshness. And the whole thing is about is, is knowing the Word of God and having your senses trained to discern good and evil. And I'm 68, and I, there's so much more I need to learn. My father-in-law is 98. We live with my father-in-law. He was a missionary in Sichuan province in China. And here's this godly man. You ask him, uh, what do you look forward to in the future? He said, well, I have so much more to learn. And uh, all of his best friends are young people. They come to, us, they come to the house all the time. And uh, the phone rings all the time. Nobody ever phones for me. They always phone for him. Either, either my father-in-law or my wife. And uh, it's really wonderful living with, uh, with him and, and taking care of him. I will read uh, the text uh, that we're going to look at today. And then I'll divide the text up into four different points. And let's read Christ, uh, the last uh, phrase of verse 27. It says, Christ in you the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man. How many? Every man. Now when you talk about a man, that's talking about a person. Every person. Every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Four points this morning. Our message, our method, our motive, our means. You know, the Presbyterians always have seven points. The Baptists always have three. Well, I'm a backslidden Presbyterian, I guess. I have four. And the point number one, verse 28, our message. Our message, we proclaim Him. Now, Him is the Lord Jesus Christ. We proclaim Him who is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I'm surprised that we preach everything else but Christ. It's in, in our, many of our churches, in activities, in missions. Uh, listen, uh, the way you reach a prostitute is through Christ. A rich person, through Christ. A street kid, through Christ. Uh, you, when you see a, a bumper sticker, Christ is the answer, Christ is the answer. And we need to remember that presenting the Lord Jesus Christ, not just saying Jesus, but the gospel which is wrapped up in 
the message of Christ. If I was going to ask you for one word to describe the gospel, what would it be? I would use the word substitution. Christ who died in your place for your sin. In my place for my sin. In our place for our sin. I was walking down the road not too long ago in Seattle. I try to walk because of my cancer situation. I walk. My health is bad. I walk in the morning for an hour, uh, for a mile, and the afternoon a mile. And when I'm walking, I don't like to waste time, so I read. I read reports from all over the world. I, I don't read books, but I read my, my papers. I'm walking down the road the other day near my office, and I pass a bus stop. The bus pulls up next to me and stops, and a girl gets off the bus, and she's right behind me. A little 12-year-old girl. And she says, Oh, there you are again. We talk about you at school all the time. This old man that walks down the road reading. What do you read? And before I could answer, she said, Do you have a cigarette? And I said, No, I don't have a cigarette. I don't smoke. I said, How old are you? She said, Twelve. And I said, Do your parents know that you smoke? Now, I expected her to say, My parents don't care what I do. That's all she said. She said, my, care, my parents don't care about me. And I said, as we're walking, I said, that makes you sad, doesn't it? She said, yes, it makes me sad. But my parents, and she started swearing, and I said, you know, I know a parent that cares about you. What parent cares about me? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I said, God has given us a, a book called the Bible. And the Bible calls God the Heavenly Father. God, the Heavenly Father, the parent, the true parent, He cares about you. See, I don't believe that. How, how, how do I know that's true? And I said, it's true because He proved His love for you by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. She said, really? And as we walked down the road, we finally came to her house, and I just explained to her, here's an old man, we were 12 years of age, who had already been finding you know, the taste of the will and all of its, its sinfulness. And yet, I'm t- telling her about the Heavenly Father who sent His Son Jesus to die in her place for her sin. And as she got to her driveway to go to her house, as she walked up the driveway to her house, she says, Thanks, Mr., for talking to me. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. I have a five-year-old grandson. Oh, when he was five, we were going down a road in Seattle and I was trying to find a, uh, a driving my car, I was trying to find a, the basketball score of one of the championship games, NBA, and I, and I just arrived back from the Philippines and I did not know what sports station it was, so I just pushed the scan button. And, uh, you know, the scan button, it goes from station to station. You know, hard rock and jazz and rap and talk radio and more hard rock and more rap. And, and my grandson, who was five at the time, said, Grandpa, you should listen to music like that. And I said, DJ, I'm not listening to that music. She said, he said, Grandpa, I saw you listening to that music. And I said, DJ, what's wrong with that music? So we started talking about the music, how it was, the beat was conducive to godly living and, and the words were bad and some of them were very filthy and so forth. And, and we started talking about sin. Now, the only way I can have a theological discussion with anybody if he's five years of age. So we're discussing sin. 
And as we discuss sin about when Jesus died in our place for our sin, and this little five-year-old boy looked at me and said, Grandpa, when Jesus died on the cross for my sin, that's my favorite story. Is that your favorite story? Now see, that's hard for me to even understand. How a little kid in his eyes of faith, blood, agony, darkness, death, crying, pain, screaming, and yet to him, all that agony was the fact that Jesus took the punishment of sin for him. See, that's the gospel. Several years ago, when I had cancer, the doctors told me I had three months to live. Two of my missionary friends decided to take me out for breakfast. Breakfast is my favorite meal. And, uh, and I guess it was called the last breakfast. <laughs> but they took me out to this meal, and, and uh, they took me to a restaurant that was having a uh, a special on bacon and eggs and and uh, and all that good cancer foods, you know, and uh, and uh, and so we we got there and there must have been a convention going on because the place was full and it didn't have enough service. So finally, we got a seat and uh, the waitress gave us a coffee and then she rushes off. She said, "You know, I'll be back in a few minutes to take your order." She rushes off and and one of my friends said, "I wonder if that server, that waitress, is a believer." And I looked at her, and she wasn't attractive. There wasn't something, you know, beautiful about her. She was kind of dumpy, in fact. You know, her hair was all kind of messed up. She had three on her brows, and, and, uh, and she wasn't attractive, but there was something about her. Something about her face and the way she served people. Her, her whole character, her whole character, demeanor uh, of servanthood. And so I said to my friends, that when she comes over, I will try to find out if she's a Christian. And so she finally came over and said, may I have your order, please? And I said, ma'am, I said, no, this is not a very good time to ask this question. you got so much to do. You know, and I said, but I'm, can I ask you a question? I said, the doctors tell me that I'm dying of cancer. I only have three months to live. Can you tell a man who's dying of cancer how to go to heaven? I can't believe I asked her that. I'm, she's trying to sell bacon and eggs. Can you tell a man who's dying of cancer how to go to heaven? She looked at me and she said, I certainly can. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I fell back in my chair. Wow. I said, then you must know John 14, 6. She said, certainly. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now may I have your order? <laughs> Friends, that is the kind of person I want to be like. The word is convenient. When you feel like it. When you're sick. When you're busy. Whether you looked apart, whether you're attractive, whether you're not, whatever, to really be able to say to a person, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, without the way there's no going. I am the truth, without the truth there's no knowing. I am the life, without the life there is no living. See, that's the gospel. That's our message. Number two, our method. Look at verse 28. It says, Admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom. Three things here. Admonish. That means to warn, to stimulate, to encourage, to, to plead with people, to be reconciled to God, to trust God, to obey God, to love for God. Even to the point that you embarrass yourself when you do it. My son is a, we adopted him when he was five. Filipino, German, Irish, American, you name it. Yes, he's got it. We call him in the Philippines. We have a, a, a drink called uh, Halo Halo, which is mixed mix. He's got everything. 
And we adopted him as five, and, and now he's 39. He's a varsity coach. He's a teacher of missionary uh, school in the Philippines, and wife and three kids. And, but I remember when he started coaching. Uh, my son, you, you have to know him. He's just so, he's just so excited. I've never seen somebody, he's a pie piper of kids. Kids love him. Wherever he goes, kids are around him. He has such a demeanor about him and love for kids. And, but he's a varsity coach. And I remember one of the first games I went to see him play, uh, coach in the States years ago. And, and I was up in the balcony of this big stadium. And I'm standing next to a man. I'm watching this game. And, and I said to the man, what team are you for? He said, I'm either. Well, who are you rooting for? Somebody, some player? No. Well, why are you here? He said, I came to watch the coach. He said, look at him. He said, a lot of these people up here, they only came, they only come to watch him coach because we've never seen a coach. I mean, he's running up and down, jumping on the chair, benches, he's getting thrown out about everywhere in the game. He's so enthusiastic. You know, that's the way we ought to be, really. Maybe not, maybe not exactly right, but do people know that we are serious in admonishing people to love God and serve Him and follow Him and obey Him? You know, I'm, I'm Admonish, but also it says teaching. Christianity is a life, but it's a life built on doctrine. Oh, teaching. What does the Word of God say? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture. How much? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God prepares you for that. I listed a few things. What does the Word of God say about romance? What does the Word of God say about relationships? It says a lot. What does the Word of God say about ritual? You know, praying mantras and and uh, being baptized in the River Jordan. You know, a lot of us come out of the Catholic background. We have to be careful. We, we don't get sidetracked with rituals and mantras. When the Word of God teaches the acts of the opposite. What does the Word of God say about riches? How do we handle our money? Does it say it? It says a lot. Yesterday I read First Timothy and Second Timothy. He said, and Paul's telling Timothy to plead with those people, warn those with riches in the way they use their finances. How do you use your money? How do you use your money? I was at a Italian restaurant not too long ago, and I, for lunch, and went in and sat down, and the man I was supposed to meet, the pastor, wasn't there yet, and the, the server, the waitress, brought over the, uh, 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 while you're waiting, here's the wine menu. I said, well, no, thank you, but she just left the wine menu there. And I'm working on some papers, and I happened to glance up, and they had a, it was a wine menu it had a special advertisement you know special imported wine from Chile seven bucks a glass and I said what? <laughs> it just runs over what's that? what's wrong? something wrong? and I said seven dollars a glass of wine? I said we just had a camp in Malawi, Africa it cost us three dollars and fifty cents per child seven dollars I could say two kids to camp she said you know I don't push one I don't push one <laughs> You know, it's not that it's wrong for you to spend money on a meal for your wife of $20. But remember, you can support a pastor for a month for $20. 
See, it's not wrong to do, but it's not even worth both hands. I bought my wife uh, a set of knives for Valentine's Day. I'm really romantic. <laughs> I found out the day before that I didn't know knives were good or bad. I, you know, she, she had never had sharp knives. I felt terrible after 42 years of marriage and I had not bought my wife. But I got her some roses too. I don't want to use a knife on me. But you know, it wasn't wrong for me to do that. But at the same time, for a dozen roses, I can support two pastors. Three pastors. Like in Cuba. You know this uh, thing you go around, this uh, riding pad. It has a ballpoint pen on it. I'm in Cuba not too long ago. Speaking at a large conference. A large conference. After we, and, and, uh, uh, after we left the, the conference, we're driving back to Havana. Well, I, I learned something. The guys were talking Spanish. I don't know Spanish. And they all talking Spanish and kind of looking at me and talking Spanish, trying to look at me and stuff. And finally they said, So is it okay with you? We're going to pull off the road for a few minutes. And we're just going to go and visit this little church in this little town that we're passing through. Well, we got to this little church and there were about 45 pastors there. And they all said, Since you're here, can we have a cup of coffee, you know, and so forth. Your plane's not till midnight. It's only an hour to the airport from here. So, uh, hey, since we're here, uh, could you share a little bit what you shared at the conference with these 45 pastors? So I had some notes in my Bible on biblical leadership, a pastoral leadership from First Timothy, and I took them out and I started speaking. Now, in the front row, there were six pastors. It was a small church, six pastors. And I started speaking, and I noticed the pastor was trying to write down everything I said. Only one of them had a Bible. Five of them only had a New Testament. They were pastors. All they had was a New Testament. They had one ballpoint pen that they were passing back and forth between the six of them. Writing, trying to write in the margins of them. By the way, if you go to Cuba, it's the cleanest country in the world because they have nothing to throw away. There's no paper on the floor. There's no paper out there. They, they use everything. It's the world poorest country in the world. And you, 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 I found out these pastors are only making between five and nine dollars a month. Five and that to nine dollars a month. That's all they make. And I, and I thought, now, there's nothing wrong with me spending money to bless you. I bought some, somebody a gift here. Recently, you know, twenty-five dollar gifts to go wrong with that. But after realizing at the same time, I need to also be concerned about some of the needs of the world. Pastors, Christian workers, sending kids to camp, translation of scripture. So what does the word of God say about ritual and riches and romance and relationships and racism and retirement? You know, you're called to reach your generation. And some of you look like you're about dead. But did you know you're not dead yet? And God has called you, gave you responsibility to reach your generation with the good news of God. And that is until the time you die. And you may say you're 80 or 90 or elderly. You are just as responsible for the people in your neighborhood as anybody is. And some of the older people need to realize some of the people that we're not reaching are teenagers. And teenagers have no older people in their lives. If you need to be kind to them, generous to them, and helpful to them, 
You know the kids in this neighborhood should be the fattest kids in Chicago. Because some of you older people are always having them over for homemade pie, homemade breads, homemade desserts, which they never have ever tasted in their homes because they never have a meal together. Retirement and religion. What religion? What is true religion, by the way? We say, oh, I'm not religious. Well, I hope you are religious. James 1.27 says, true religion. In the sight of God, pure and undefiled religion, the sight of God our Father, is to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Look at that one phrase, to care for orphans. True religion, pure, it says pure, undefiled, no stain. The true, genuine article of religion is to care for orphans. All of you caring for orphans? These missionaries that are represented here, they probably have ministries among the poor and needy. Are you involved with supporting orphans, caring for orphans in some way? And by the way, right here in Chicago, how many teenagers are orphans, that you, kids that you know are orphans? Orphan means fatherless. Walking down the street in Seattle. School lets out. I'm on the other side of the street because all the kids are on this side. And I'm walking along there and a kid comes up behind me. Maybe a little boy, maybe seven or eight. Says the same thing that girl said. Oh, there you are again. We talk about you at school all the time. This old man that walks down the street reading. What are you reading? And I happen to be reading a report from one of our workers in Cambodia. And I said, oh, I'm reading about orphans in Cambodia. He said, what's an orphan? Now, he was just a kid in school, seven or eight, did not know what an orphan. I said, well, I'm a Christian. And God has given us a book called the Bible to know how to follow him and love him. And, he's, and the Bible says an orphan is a fatherless child. He said, a fatherless child? Then he got real quiet. He said, I guess I'm an orphan because I don't have a father. And he says, you know, all my friends in school, they must be orphans too because none of them have fathers. And I told him when I told that little 12-year-old girl, I said, I know a father that cares about you. Who? Who? And I told him about God, the Heavenly Father. And the same thing. He said, we walked up to his sidewalk to his house. He said, thank you, mister, for talking to me. By the way, when's the last time a kid ever said that to you? Because you gave him the time of day. Thank you for talking to me. Then it says, uh, admonish and teach, but it says, with all wisdom. This means to research and study and check out ways to effectively share the gospel and teach the Word of God. One author said, We as God's servants, in strict compliance to the Word of God, use the best means to reach the highest goals. So, do you, do you research and study? And You know, I was walking down the alleys of uh, Chicago uh, near Moody Bible Institute this morning. I walk up and down the alleys to see where people sleep and try to stay out of the cold and, and so forth. And, and yesterday I was walking down State Street and Dearborn Street and uh, looking at all these rich places. I was praying for all the... You know, God, if I was living here, what method would I use to reach these people in these high-rise apartments? And, you know, that, that's what you call research. How, how, would you, how would you reach them with the good news of Christ? 
How do you reach these old people? How do you reach these struggling, uh, hard Jewish people or these people over here that are, are over here? I wonder if they're rich and they're poor and, uh, and they're, they're panhandlers and they're street kids. How, how do you reach them? See, that's what this means. You look for ways. You may not feel necessarily comfortable with certain classes of society. But all classes need the gospel of Christ. How do you reach a street kid? I know since this is a missions conference, let me tell you a problem we have in the Philippines. How do you reach... We, in Manila, we have 100,000 children living on the streets. 100,000. How can you effectively reach a child who's like a wild animal, who has no mother, no father, who lives in sin and agony and pain and rape and abuse, not only to himself, but him giving to the others. It's a terrible life. What happens when they go, a little child, six or seven, when a typhoon comes? When there's a fire? When there's a coup going on? When they go for safety? They have no idea what to do. So how do you reach them with the gospel? They're living in starvation. They're living in pain. All of them have syphilis, gonorrhea. They've all been raped. They don't trust adults. So how do you reach them? I'm downtown Manila. It's lunchtime. We were outdoor little restaurant there. I have six chairs and little lady behind this little this table she had set up and she had a, some hot plates there and she was cooking rice and vegetables and some fish. So I sat down and ordered rice, vegetables, and fish, and Pepsi-Cola, and I'm eating, and, and right over here is a big 55-gallon rum garbage can. And as I'm eating, it's so hot, it's maybe 100 degrees, and flies all over this garbage can, and oh, it's terrible. And a little boy walks up, maybe six or seven, and starts going through the garbage to get something to eat. I did just what you would do. I said, hey, what are you doing? Come over here. So he came over and I sat him down in the chair next to me and ordered him rice and fish and vegetables. And I know your mothers would get upset with me. I even got him a Coca-Cola. And uh, it cost me, what, 50 cents? I may be a cheap missionary, but I got 50 cents. And uh, you would have done the same thing. You, know, you would do the same thing, wouldn't you? That, shouldn't I feed him? I mean, the kid's starving. He's on a garbage can. So as he starts eating, I start sharing the gospel with him. Where you from and what's your name? And he's really not answering. He didn't trust me. He didn't know who I am. I, I'm not doing another adult going to abuse him. I start sharing the gospel to him. Do you think he understood? He's angry, but do you think he understood what I was saying? I noticed that when his little stomach was sticking out and he had, you know, full of worms. He had cuts all over him. He only had a pair of briefs, filthy underwear. That's all he had on. No shoes. His hair was just matted with, with, with filth and with bugs and stuff crawling in his hair. He had cuts all over his back and his little emaciated chest. It was a terrible situation. And I started sharing the gospel. I noticed that he, he, when he ate, he was eating with a spoon in one hand. He, and it was soft food, rice and fish, very soft. And, but he was eating very, very carefully because you could tell his mouth was full of pain. I noticed what few teeth he had were all black. He's eating in pain. And I noticed he couldn't sit very. I know there's children here. I have to be careful. 
he couldn't sit very well. He was in pain. Found out later he'd been raped by a gang of homosexuals the night before. And this little kid, he's eating, even though he's in pain, because he's starving, even though it's so painful to him. He kept looking over his shoulder. Across the street, there were about 10 or 12 other street boys, and he looking at them in fear. Even though they were his supposedly friends, his own gang, he knew that after he ate, they were going to beat him, simply he, out of jealousy that he got something they didn't. So do you think he understood when I'm talking to him? He didn't understand a thing I said. Because he's in a different world. A world of pain and agony and fear and distrust. Well, how do you reach a kid like that? We took him. We took those boys across the street. Took him to camp. With a hundred other kids. And we took him to camp. And the first thing we put him on a bus and we take him to camp. And we give him, first thing we do is get off the bus. And we take him all down to the lake. <laughs> they all jump in full foot of water, you know. They all jump in this shallow water. We give them all a bar of soap. And they start scrubbing. It looks like a washing machine. You know, suds all over the place. And, and these kids, and, they, and then we get in and we help them wash and show them how to do it. And they all get out about 30 minutes later. And their little brown skin is squeaky clean. And we, and, uh, we give them a pair of clean shorts and, 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 and slippers and a, a T-shirt. And a dentist looks after their mouth. And we... Treat them for syphilis and gonorrhea. The doctor takes care of them. Take them over to the dining room and give them a huge meal and give them seconds. Then we take them over to the chapel and we start learning scripture songs and we fill them with the word of God. We share the gospel. We take them over to their cabins and they go to bed that night and they and they, they go to sleep and they know that we're going to protect them. We're not going to abuse them during the evening and they feel safe. And the next morning, we try to wake them up. You know, when we go to camp, our kids get up really early because they want to play. We can't get these kids out of bed. Seven, eight, nine, ten, because they've been living on the streets. They always sleep with one eye open. Their little bodies are just exhausted. And when they come to camp and they're in a safe place, our children want to be safe with their parents. Their little bodies just shut down. And finally, about 10 o'clock, we, we have to wake them up. We have to get up, get up. It's time to eat breakfast. And they say, breakfast? You mean we get to eat again today? And that's when our counselors, many of them break. They said, oh yeah, you get to eat again today. Three meals and two snacks. And what happens at camp? They're filled with love. And they become children. Truth becomes in back in their legs on, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And they begin to run around like children. And they're happy. And their stomachs are full. A lot of the pain is going away. And around Thursday and Friday, many of them turn from sin to the Savior. Because it's like Paul writing to Timothy. Their, their, their stomach, their mind, which is in their stomach, goes up to their head where it's supposed to be. And like Paul wrote to Timothy, they begin to understand and comprehend the truth of the gospel. And many of them come to faith in Christ. See, it's just research. You, you, you look for a race. You know, we're trying to start a church among the rich in, in the Philippines. How do you reach the rich? So we just had a banquet. Sold tickets to the rich. Can you believe this? They paid to come and hear the gospel. Had a big banquet. They saw 125 tickets. The rich came because they wanted to hear this Indian speaker that we had. The Campus Crusade for Christ music group. In those days, they all, they all came to, to, to hear this in sort of big deal. Shared the gospel. 25 people came to Christ. The next day, we started church with 35. I just spoke in the church, by the way, last month. 6,000 people now. See, what, what I mean is, it's not that it always happens that way. 
But you look for ways. And by the way, you know how to really reach people? Open the door to reach people with the gospel? Simply by living the Christian life? Let living salt and light? Being kind? Being understanding? Put in the heart of compassion, we read in Colossians. Heart of compassion and kindness and gentleness and goodness and meekness. You know, being able to have no relationship with others simply because you've not grown in your Christian life to the point that you're, you're, you're living like Christ. Our message, our method, now our motive. Verse 28. That we may present every man complete, mature in the Lord Jesus. Now the purpose of God is to take sinners and save them and put them into His church and set them on the road to sanctification to glorify His Son. As believers, we are to continue to grow in our faith. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love that we may grow up. That we may grow up. So let me ask you a personal question today. Are you a more mature Christian today than you were last year? Are you growing in the Lord? Some of you have known Christ for several years now. Some many years. Have you become more and more like Him? Humble and holy and honest and compassionate and kind and generous and easy to get along with? Have you become more or have you become more like an enemy who's, who would have you to be proud and selfish and stubborn and hard and self-centered? You know, I hate to admit it. I, I'm embarrassed about being around older people sometimes. You know why? I would think that if we've known Christ for 40, 50 years, we've become more like Him. But many of us old people, we've become hard, and stubborn, set in our ways. <laughs> Knowing Christ all these years, we should be exactly the opposite. We know that we learn, however, some of our best lessons through difficulty. But many of us, instead of allowing the difficult situation, and many of us have had many pains and sorrows and problems and difficulties, instead of allowing that situation, difficult situation, whether it's death or discouragement or separation or sadness or sickness to make us better, instead we become what? Bitter. Depressed. And angry. Remember that any problem, pain or heartache that God brings into your life is for His glory, but for your good. For your good. Whatever that might be. To suffer for Christ's sake, to go through any difficulty with trust in God, is a kingly privilege. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. I don't like this any more than you do. But this verse seems to indicate salvation and suffering go hand in hand. And the sooner we realize that, see, the world, everybody suffers. You and I are to suffer as believers. We say in the Philippines, among them, true believers. 
to suffer because of our stand for Christ, our walk with Christ, living for Christ. You see, some of, some of us, oh, I want to go to this country as a missionary, but they don't like Americanos so much. I want to go there, but they don't like Puerto Ricans. Oh, I want to go there, but they don't like blacks. Oh, and I, and I want listen, you're not going to these countries for them to like you. You're going to these countries that they fall in love and like the Savior. And some of us are going to have to suffer that they might know Christ. I came back, my wife, I came back from Mexico City. And uh, it was time for my regular exam with my oncologist, my cancer oncologist. He's been a leading oncologist in the world, Dr. Saul Rifkin. And I'm a basically intimidated with others and, and bashful, but believe it or not, but I was having a hard time. I'm not an evangelist. I'm seeking to be a witness. And, and I tried to look for ways to share the gospel with this, this prestigious Jewish man, Orthodox Jew. And, uh, and I shared the gospel many times with him. And he was just cold and wouldn't listen and would walk out of the room and he got really upset when I went to Africa and he thought I was going to die in three days because I had no immune system and our relationship was trying to build a relationship with him and just got back from Mexico. He said, Doug, where were you last week? And uh, I said, uh, Mexico City. Is that why you didn't keep your appointment last week? I said, sir, I canceled it and so forth. I couldn't be back in time. The plane driving problem. What are you doing there? And I said, well, I said, I work here with street kids. Street kids? You always work with street kids. You know, really prejudiced. And I said, well, yes. And I said, yeah, you, but man, I had a great time. Said, what do you mean you had a great time? I said, well, I was working with this one gang of street kids. And they were going to show me where they lived. Under the streets and the sewer lines of, of Mexico City. And so they took me down to their home. They were crawling on these tunnels. And they didn't have flashlights. They had candles. And they scared me to death. They blew them out. And, uh, and then and we were going down to show me, and they were so excited to show me their home, and even had a Bible study down under the streets of Mexico City. And then I came up, they said, well, let's take a shortcut. So we went up these, this uh, ladder up and came up into a manhole on a busy street in Mexico City, and the police were not there directing traffic, and I came up out of a manhole. And he sees this gringo, and man, he got mad. And I'm telling him all this stuff, he said, I don't like this at all. Why are you wasting your time with street kids? I said, Dr. Rifkin, they need the gospel. And all of a sudden, he just stopped. The gospel. You're always talking about the gospel. And he sat down and he said, would you explain that to me again? He'd never done that before. Now, the problem with this, every time he did talk to me about these serious questions, I was always naked. You know, I had, I was, I had my pants were off, you know, I was you know, up in the gym and I had this towel over me. And I, I don't mind sharing the gospel, I like to have my clothes on, you know. And I'm, uh, my wife was here, and I'm explaining the gospel. First time I ever did that, you know, I'm saying, oh, I'm bashful. So I'm sharing the gospel with him. And later, after I had my clothes on, my wife and I are walking out to the car. And I said, isn't that interesting? Here I am a nobody. And this prestigious doctor asked me to explain the gospel to him. 
here I am, here we are, Margaret, with no money. This wealthy man asked us to explain. You know, here's this man, an intellectual. You know, I didn't even read until I was 21. I still have trouble. And yet he's asking me. We have no prayer, no anything. And I don't even hit the same level. And yet, why was he asking me to explain the gospel to him? What brought that about was cancer. My sickness put me in that chair. No clothes at all. Right in that place. And put me in a position to share the gospel. Which is more important? Health and happiness or a holy life and someone's salvation? God takes no pleasure in our pain. However, He takes great pleasure in our development. Suffering is never the goal. It's simply the road to glory. Number four, our message, our method, our motive. And let me close with our means. Verse 29. For this purpose, Paul said, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Notice two things here. Number one, I labor. To reach all the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to take blood and tears and sweat. It will take hard work. The Lord Jesus said, work for the night is coming when no one will have an opportunity to work anymore. Some people will never be reached because some of us are simply lazy. Lazy. See, the gospel is easy, but it came to us in a hard road. And for you and I realize, there's nothing Paul even said. He realized the power of the Holy Spirit, but he said, I labor. I labor. And some of you, I've never known in all my years of ministry, anybody, I've never known anybody that worked himself to death. And you're half of you say, oh, you need to take your rest. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a balance. But why do we always talk about it? Some of us need to have our backs bent under the gospel plow of the sheer labor of giving ourselves that people might come to Savior. I labor. Great preacher C.H. Burgeon, after his elders told him not to work so hard or he would die early. So what if I work hard for the master's service and die early, he said. I'll just have less of this whole earth and more of daily. You know, remember, remember when John saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, remember? He was so afraid he fell down. Jesus approached him. This is not even in the context. But Jesus approached him, put his hand on him and said, Fear not, John. I'm the one who holds the keys to death. You don't have to worry about dying. Jesus, you know, by early, too late, we're just on time. Jesus holds the keys to death. He turns it when he wants. Either cancer won't do it, banana peel won't do it, falling down these crazy steps won't do it. Yeah, I put a ring in here. (laughs) Jesus will turn the key of death when he wants. After the fire of the home for orphans, which George Whitfield built, the great evangelist, he's 
they labor for it more earnestly than ever. He was determined he wrote to be sold a slave on a ship. I would rather work as a slave than see my orphan suffer. When's the last time you've uh, said anything like that? When's the last time you said that? A couple came up to me in church in the Philippines and I spoke to them about working with street kids and I talked about this little girl who was 12, I mean 17, going to college, but she couldn't afford to go to college. And, and I said, how's she going to go to college? She needs $500 to go to a semester of school. And this orphan, she was, a, she was a prostitute at six years of age, picked up off the street, came to faith in Christ, went through this orphanage. Now she's going to college. She wanted to go and learn social welfare work and take the gospel back in the social welfare department in, in Manila. And here she was. And I, and I said, oh, and I just told her, how is she going to get that money? She's, a, she's an orphan. She's a, she's a basic, nobody. How is she going to go to school? Afterwards at the church, a couple came up and gave me a, an envelope and it was folded over. Later at lunch, I opened it up and a diamond ring fell out. A diamond ring. And the note said, sir, when you were talking about sending the girl to school, you didn't say how much she, you didn't say she needed five hundred and twenty-five dollars or four hundred and fifty dollars. You said five hundred. That's exactly what we paid for our our engagement ring. We're engaged one week. We spent all of our money. That's all the money we have. Please take this ring and send that girl to school. Now, by the way, I, I was able to <laughs> raise money for that and give the ring back. But when's the last time you've done anything of suffering that others might have the gospel? Paul said, I labor. Let me close with this last point. I labor, but striving according to His power. His power. You will notice in our text that we start with Christ, we end with Christ. You cannot live the life of Christ in your own power. You cannot present the gospel of the living Christ in your own power. Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Jesus said, I am with you always. Our text says, Christ in you. The hope of glory. Nathan is going to uh, take a team to the Philippines. They're going to be working with a man by the name of Mark McDowell. Mark McDowell came to the Philippines years ago. He was a student at Moody Bible Institute. And he came and uh, he helped us build a vocational training center for street kids. At the end of the time he was with us, he, he asked if he could move into a slum area and learn how to live with the poor. So we said, sure. And so he moved in, and he was a very shy person, so what did he do? He was there for two weeks. And he simply taught people how to, uh, you know, he just simply uh, uh, helped them to repair their homes and so forth. And as he sat around the campfire at night, people came to, people started hearing the gospel and coming to faith in Christ. At the end of the two weeks, he went back to, uh, went back to Chicago to school, and we had Bible studies with them. And the Bible, these women were in a follow-up Bible study class. And there was Easter time. And they had a lesson on Easter. What um, uh, the resurrection of Christ. And at the end of the lesson, they simply asked a question. What was the greatest event in all of history? Fully expecting all the women to say what? The resurrection of Christ. But they didn't say that. They said the greatest event in our life was when Mark McDowell came to live with us. Was it wrong? 
No, they weren't wrong. Why? Because Christ went in that little village in the person of Mark Baddow. See, that's our text. Christ in you, the hope of glory.